Amen. It's a privilege to gather each Sunday and to remind ourselves of the glorious truth of the gospel that we rest in so, uh, just so powerfully and so freely. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading in verse 7 of Mark chapter 6. What I'm going to do initially is I'm going to read verses 7 through 13 and then 30 through 32, okay? And then we'll come back to the text that is sandwiched in the middle, okay? So let's uh, begin reading verse 1 or verse uh, 6, I'm sorry. It says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him He began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now get down to verse 30, which is the return of the disciples from that commissioning. Okay, and then there's a story in the middle that we'll come back to. The apostles gathered around Jesus. This is as they returned. And they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them... Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Yesterday, we had the privilege of having a wedding here. Uh, Most of you, I think, know that Megan uh, Raftery, who was the head of the Walter Huffington that meets in Oxford, New Jersey, about two years ago, met a, uh, an incredibly nice uh, young man and uh, through a process of memorizing scripture together and chatting and being able to visit a couple of times, came to the conclusion that God had called them to be together. And yesterday we had the privilege of doing their wedding ceremony here, just a very beautiful and wonderful day. Weddings are relatively easy, at least from the groom's perspective. Marriage, however, is challenging. Not saying it's a bad thing, but it's challenging. We don't do weddings in our church family, mostly as a pastoral team, without doing premarital counseling. Uh, The reason we insist on that is uh, we know that it looks easy, but we want you to know that it's not. Okay, marriage is one of the most challenging relationships that you will experience. It is hopeful if we allow the gospel of grace to permeate it. If a husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church, and if we forgive each other as God has forgiven us in Christ, it is joyful, but it is never without struggles. Because you're bringing two sinners together. That's just the reality of the marital relationship. Another illustration of joyful yet difficult is becoming a parent. 
my recollection, my personal experience is that when our children were born, there was a, a visceral emotion. There was a, a sense of joy that was accompanied with tears. For my wife, it was a little different experience, but for me, it was, it was an amazing experience to stand and watch this little one come into being. Having children and raising children is different. Uh, having them is not that difficult. Raising them can be very challenging. Sometimes your kids are on what my daughter calls the struggle bus. Okay, and they're, they're just not bringing smiles to your face right now. Uh, as grandparents, we love being around the grandchildren. And if you haven't heard the word, our three daughters are all expecting right now, uh, at this, wasn't planned, okay, it wasn't planned, it's just the way that it is, okay? <clears throat> uh, having them over is joyful, they are so darn cute, it kind of blows your mind. Sometimes they need to go home. That's the way it is. Right? You love them to death. But you're glad it's 60 years old. They're not your responsibility because it's exhausting to be around them. I thought of this also. Studying to become a pastor, it was all good. I loved the experience of uh, of learning to be a pastor and hearing about what it's going to be like seeing it as I saw it, but the truth is this. Ministry is not all, as my one friend says, it's not all beer and Skittles. It's not all always happy. The truth is we are people. And so there are struggles in the relationships. I love it. Wouldn't trade God's calling for anything. But it doesn't mean it's always easy. Today we are exposed in this text to fruitful Christ following, right? As I read the beginning of that text and I read the end, the disciples are sent and the disciples come back and they are overwhelmed with joy at what God is doing through their lives. And so the first part of this text that I want to deal with, the beginning and the end, deal with the divine commission and divine encouragement. And that's all good. The middle part is quite different. And and in this text, and Doug mentioned this last Sunday, Sunday, sometimes in the Gospel of Mark, you're dealing with with, with what you call a sandwich. So there's uh, the statement about their being sent out and the statement about their return. And sandwiched in in the middle is a story for the reader. Right? So Mark writes this text to the early church. The disciples are in the process of fading out. And the church is going to take up the baton of ministry. They're going to begin to run the race. And the writer, under the inspiration of scripture, tells about ascending and a returning. But in the middle, it enlightens us to the fact that ministry is not all easy. That Christ following is not always a bowl of cherries. Sometimes there is struggle. And the text is overt about it. It is transparent about the fact that while ministry is exhilarating and fruitful, it can at times be difficult. That's the truth of the Christian experience. And so I love how this text unfolds, and I look forward to working through this text with you this morning. So let's look first at this divine commissioning that we find in verse 7 through 13. We find out that the disciples are essentially sent out to do what Jesus did. 
Okay, and at the end of his ministry, Jesus is going to look at the disciples and say, what you saw me do, do it. Go fulfill the commission that you saw me fulfill that came from my father. And here's the way it works out in the text. They are sent out by Jesus two by two, and he gives them authority over impure spirits. That is, he enables the mission that he calls them to. Okay, and so there is this divine authority and empowering that every believer experiences. Verses 8 through 10 tell us the instructions that he gives to his disciples. And it's fascinating because it's all about minimalism. Okay, take this, don't take this and this and this, even though commonly if you're going on a journey, you would take this and this. Don't take it. Why? Because Jesus wants his disciples as they go, he wants us as his followers, as we go to do his work, to be conscious of our need to be dependent on him. I think the lesson in the text is live in such a way that you at some level are experiencing a constant dependency on Christ. Go, go gladly, go in obedience, go in full surrender. But go realizing that you in that journey of obedience are desperately dependent upon God for success in the journey. I don't know about you, that gives me hope. I, my, my, my honest confession before you is this. I did not go into ministry and I did not respond to the call of ministry for me with a full sense of adequacy. For me, there was always that, that feeling, and I think it's, for me, I think it's a fact of average. And be okay with that. And trust God to do what he's called you to do in spite of the inherent or known weaknesses. Don't let them stifle you. Don't let them paralyze you. Step into the calling that God has given you and do it with confidence. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, and so, so Jesus sends these guys out. And implied in the limit of things they're taking with them is this statement. Trust me. Trust me. So he gives them a few uh, different suggestions for how they will amplify or magnify that level of trust. And then verses 12, 13 gives us the description of this experience. It says, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they go out with the primary purpose of preaching everywhere that men should repent. So the, the focus of the commission is preaching the gospel. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, you'll find that after John's ministry is done, Jesus begins his public ministry, and his public ministry includes proclaiming, repent, and believe the gospel. So as Christ's followers go out, it should be no surprise to us that if they're fulfilling the commission that Christ has given them, it will involve preaching and teaching repentance in the name of Jesus. Okay, so they're, they're spreading a message, but in this sharing of the message, this divine authority wraps around their ministry. And so there is a demonstration clearly in these verses of God's power accompanying the proclamation of the gospel. I want to make these observations for you very quickly. The miracles that are done by the disciples are not for theater. 
Okay, it's not to establish a church where people can go and see amazing things. The aim of the work of God behind the proclamation of the gospel is not theater. It is never isolated from proclaiming. It is never the main event. It's never done to impress, but to convict, validate, draw, and guide. So as you assess what is happening around you when you're wondering if it is God at work. The question that you must always ask as you see the miraculous, is it being accompanied by the things that God's word says it will be accompanied by? Okay, in this context, it it goes along with and affirms the gospel. Signs in the Bible, miraculous signs in the Bible, are always in service to gospel proclaiming with the effect of authenticating the message. They validated the proclamation of the apostles as they did the work that Christ had done uh, for them. In this sense then, every physical healing and every deliverance is a taste of God's power and it is a manifestation of the inbreaking or the breaking free and expansion of the kingdom of God. That's how these things in the gospels primarily function. Now, I, I don't know how you read those things, but here's the way I read them. When I read it, I, there is something about that evidencing of God's power in the process of proclamation that is incredibly hopeful. That God not only sends us, but he gives everything that is needed for that message to become effective and life transforming. So as we fulfill this calling, we do it with joy. Now, verse 11 sounds kind of what I want to call like a sober warning. It says, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I, I don't know any way to read that as a positive. Okay, that, that implies some level of a, of a warning, something ominous, something consequential about the rejection of the message of Jesus, right? It's at least that's what's present there. Okay, now here's here's the way I think we can move this into application in our own lives. If in sharing the gospel you find profound resistance, do not think that your capacity to argue and debate will overcome it. Okay, our job as believers is to share the word of God. That's what this text tells us. To prayerfully share the word of God, trusting that God in the process of that sharing will do everything that is needed to bring belief, conviction, and salvation. But when you find that there is a stubborn, persistent resistance, Jesus says this, shake the dust off your feet and move on. What does that mean? I think it means at least this. The changing of someone's heart and mind is not my responsibility. And I am so thankful for that. God calls us to share the word. He doesn't call us to convince people. The convincing is God's work. That gives me encouragement. That gives me hope. As we move from where God has us to where God has called us to go to do the work that he's called us to do. Our job is not to make converts. Our job is to communicate the gospel that God uses to change the hearts of people. Okay, and here's the way I look at it. I can't make converts. 
I can't change people's minds about the glory of the gospel of Christ. But I can communicate to them the gospel that God by the spirit empowers to bring life transformation and change. Okay? So, first the commissioning of the disciples with an an ending statement that tells us at every front you will not find acceptance. You will not find applause. You will not find reception. Be prepared for that. I think it's a bit of a a warning. Okay? For me, it awakens what we saw earlier in the book, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees began to plot how to kill Christ as he is out fulfilling his father's will. So there is this hint at first of opposition. Okay? So the call of that first section, I think, is this. Trust in God's provision. He enables everything that he requires. So whatever it is that God is putting on your heart to do, whatever person God is calling you to reach out to, Step out in faith. Don't, don't say, well, I don't know what I would say if they ask X, Y, or Z. Or maybe I could get the pastor to talk to them. God didn't put me in their life. He put you in their life. He wants you to step out in faith. And watch what he will do through your, albeit, anemic efforts. The weakness of your effort does not determine the outcome. The power of God behind our effort. No matter how it qualifies, is what determines the outcome. God is at work enabling what he has called us to. And then I want you to move to verses 30 and 32. 30 through 32. So that text that I read to you talks about the disciples coming back into the presence of Christ. They gather around Jesus. They share all that they had done and taught. And Jesus senses in them... That there is a weariness. That ministry, the call, has at some level been exhausting to them. And so he's going to debrief them. And debriefing typically involves two activities. Okay, One is reporting what has happened. The other is resting. Okay, So typically, if you've been called into a meeting for debriefing after uh, an event in combat, let's say for a soldier or for a missionary coming back from the mission field or in the workplace, you're coming back from a big project and everything's done, you sit down and do an evaluation. Typically, along with that evaluation is a period of rest. So there's reporting and there's resting. I want you to watch in this text how it happens. Jesus says, come aside by yourselves. And get some rest. Verse 32 says, So they went away by themselves, including Christ, in a boat to a solitary place. There's something about that when you read that. There's a, there's a reprieve. There's a, a pause from the rush and pulls of life. And I think the thing that emerges from this text is this. That Jesus is interested in the divine encouragement of his disciples. He meets us in our struggle and he aims to refresh us. In that refreshing, he enables persisting in the seasons of struggle that come. Because that's the truth, isn't it? The Christian life is not an easy life. It's not a cakewalk. It's not for the faint of heart. It requires cost counting. It requires willingness to sacrifice. And so Jesus is encouraging and, 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 and blessing his disciples in this encounter. Now, in transition to the portion in the middle, verses 14 to 29, we see the word is expanding and ministry 
is expanding, and it prompts a discussion about the realities and struggles of the Christian experience. The story in the middle is the story of John the Baptist. And if I said to you, who is John the Baptist? Hopefully your answer would be something like this. John the Baptist was the quintessential follower of Jesus. John, in a way, in his life, epitomizes what it means to follow Jesus. So if the disciples were to think of the greatest disciple of their time, Jesus would point to John, Matthew 11. Of those born of women, none is greater than John. The most humble, lowly servant of Christ. And when Jesus wants to encourage his disciples in the midst of the struggle that they are about to face, he points their attention to John. So he sends them on their mission. They return. In the middle, you find this account about the struggles that face devoted followers of Christ. Okay, so let's look now at this middle section, 14 through 29. And I'm titling this section, The Call of Christ Brings Vigorous and Costly Opposition. Okay, The Call of Christ Brings Vigorous and Costly Opposition. Let's begin reading in verse 14. And keeping in mind, this is uh, on the heels of Christ ministry, and now the ministry of the disciples, just this, this expansion of the miraculous activity, gospel proclaiming, lives being changed. It says, King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miracles are working him. Others said, it's Elijah, the preeminent Old Testament prophet. Others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, and the idea of he said is, we don't really have this tense in the English language. It's the idea of muttering and repeating something. Okay, so it's, it, it's, there's kind of a haunting sense here. That as King Herod hears about the work of Christ, it sounds a lot like the work of someone else that preceded Christ, John the Baptist. Okay? He said to himself repeatedly, John, whom I beheaded, has raised from the dead. There was something so compelling about the ministry of John the Baptist, that Herod believed it was possible that God had brought John back from the dead, and Herod is terrified by that potential reality. Now, what do I see in Herod? Here's what I see. I see a residual guilt. He is alarmed by Christ's activity because it hauntingly sounds like the activity of a man that he took the life of. Okay? Now, for the reader, for you and I, Okay, we read this and we see the disciples are sent. We see them return at the end. But in the middle, there is this departure on the part of the author to point us to the preeminent disciple so that we know we would know that part of Christ following is struggling. And it, it, the story of John here is introduced in this experience of guilt on the part of Herod. So here, here's the question then. When did Herod kill John? 
And why did Herod kill John? Because whatever's going on here, the king has the authority to do that. But what he did is now haunting him. The question becomes what? Why? Why is Herod so troubled by this turn of events? And the answer to that question begins as you go to verse 17. Verse 17 tells us why Herod is muttering to himself in a desperate fashion. Here's what the text says. It says, for, which tells me why Herod is muttering and troubled and haunted, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had bound him and put him in prison. He did this not because John was objectionable, rude, rough. No. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Okay, so now I'm not going to go into the whole lineage thing here. There is There are cousin issues here. There are stepsister issues here. And there is marrying his brother's wife's issues here. Okay? The word you could put over it is, it's incestuous. Because that's what it is. So John has apparently some level of relationship with King Herod that now pushes John into a difficult place. Herod has made a decision that is reprehensible if you study history, even to the Jewish leadership In Galilee, those that opposed Christ, even they found this act on the part of Herod to be morally objectionable. Here's the question. Who is willing to speak truth to power? Who will speak to Herod about the truth of what he's done? Because that there is in that confrontation the implication of risk. Because this guy is not stable if you study any of the, uh, the history of Herod the Great and this Herod. So Herod the Great is the one that we meet at Jesus' birth. And this is his son. Okay, they are bona fidely unstable people. So you, you, if you want to think of a typical regime similar, think of the regime in, in North Korea today. Okay, think of what you think when you hear about, about King Jamil and, 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 and his sister and now this other cousin that's coming into the picture. It's treachery. And if wrong is done, who will speak truth to power? Who will, who will let him know that his way is wrong? That's what comes up in this text. Verse seven, verse 18 tells us John's response to Herod's choices. It says, John had been saying, that is in a repeated fashion to Herod, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's wrong, Herod. On the face, it's wrong. And so he spoke truth to power. Now, if you know Herod, as I just described him to you, you think, okay, that, that, that was not smart. All right, that does not end well. And you'll notice in the text, there's this haunting, haunting statement, verse 19. It says, Herodias, that is the wife of Philip who Herod married, nursed a grudge against John. So strong was it that she wanted to kill him. How dare he speak the truth to me? Folks, that's the response of my sinful heart to confrontation. Mine may not be as strong, but I have certainly wished that the person speaking to me didn't exist. Jesus calls that murder. Murder. 
If you hate someone in your heart, you wish they didn't exist, you were on dangerous ground. John speaks truth to power. Herod imprisons John for what purpose? Is it because Herod dislikes John? Look at what the text says. Right? Because of Herodias' grudge, Herod puts John into prison to save face with his wife. Because John was willing to tell the truth. Now, verse 20 is a fascinating verse. It says, because he feared John. So now all of a sudden you find what? Herod has got himself in a mess. His wife is demanding that he put John in prison, which Herod does to save face with his wife. But verse 20 says, because Herod feared John and protected him. Okay, so get the part of verse 19. She wanted to kill him. She was not able because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. It's a fascinating struggle, isn't it? Herod was enamored by John the Baptist. There was something about John the Baptist when he spoke. He spoke about the person that Herod wished that he could be. And so when Herod listened to John talk about righteousness, Herod knew who he was and desired to be somewhat different but would not make the decision to do so. Okay? It's, a sad, it's, it's an, an amazingly sad story. Here's what I think it's saying. Herod knows John to be a righteous man. He's greatly puzzled by John. There's things that John is saying that ring true in Herod's heart. Yes, that's me. But he is unwilling to speak what he knows to be true in his heart. And the text says this, yet he liked to listen to him. Folks, here's kind of the way that works. As a pastor, I, I end up in relationships that are interesting. Okay? There are people, and, and I have to sense this and be wise to it. There are times that people want me around because as a pastor, in their way of thinking... I'm a bit of a good luck charm for them. Now, you all know me, so you're thinking to yourselves, no. (laughs) No. Okay, but I'm just telling you, because of the title that I have, not because of who I am, but because of the title I have, there are people, and, and you can pick it up pretty quick, it's a weird sense in which they like to have you around, even though they completely reject everything you say. They don't like what you stand for, but because you stand for something that they find at some level admirable, they like to have you around. That's the kind of relationship that John the Baptist had with Herod. There was something about what John said that Herod wanted to be but never would be. And so that's why I think the text says he liked to listen to him. There was something fascinating, intriguing, and true about what John would say to Herod. So it's fascinating. John's goodness is attractive and obvious to Herod. Here's what that tells me. It tells me that John loved Herod. He didn't despise him because of his sinfulness. He loved him and spoke truth to him, which no one else would do. Here's the question for you. 
do the people that you speak Christ to know that you care about them before you speak truth to them? Because if they don't think you care, they don't care what you believe. So we as believers need to make sure that, that we, we, we get involved in people's lives at the most genuine level, not as theater, not as manipulation, but because we genuinely care. And as we exist with people in a loving and caring relationship, audience for the gospel begins to emerge. Because they get to see your life up close and they realize that what they assumed about you to be true actually is. And there is something about that that they have a hard time denying. May God help us as we speak truth to do it in a loving fashion and caring fashion. You see, the risk for John, John was a soul surgeon. When he, when he, when he analyzed Herod's situation, he incisively spoke truth into Herod's life. John knew the risk he was taking. One writer said it this way. Truth makes people miserable before it makes them free. That's the way the gospel works. And if you're truly converted, you've experienced the truth of the gospel making you miserable. You see yourself as the sinner that you are. And then it moves you to freedom in Christ who can set you free from your miserable sin. John had the courage on Herod's behalf to speak the truth in hopes that the wounding of Herod would lead to the healing of Herod. Here's why I think many of us don't experience the struggle that Jesus seems to imply in this sandwich most believers will experience. I think we are so careful that people appreciate us and like us that we never speak the truth to them that they may disapprove of. And in the end of the day, it ends up being about me. You understand what I'm saying? It is very possible for me to speak the parts of God's word that make me attractive, that get for me approval, but never confront the sin in someone's heart. If that's the case, you'd make a lousy medical doctor because you'd know what someone really needs, but you would give them the placebo. You're fine when you're really not. John's courage is evidence of John's love and self-sacrifice. And in that he is just like our Savior. It's not, it's not easy to follow in the steps of John. That's the path that Jesus has called his disciples to. He sends them, they come back, and in the middle is this recording of a very difficult road that God has called his followers to. May God help us to be clear. Can I, I want to do one little aside. How is it that Herod could hear from a loving man a compelling truth that he liked to hear? How is it that Herod could not turn in the face of the message of the preeminent disciple? How is it that he couldn't, that he couldn't turn? And there are five reasons in this text. And so the next part of the text tells us now, so 17 to 20 tells me how John ends up in prison. He speaks the truth. Herodias wants to kill him. 
Herod appeases his wife by saying, I shut him up in prison. But he saves face in his own conscience because at least I didn't kill him. Okay, But Herodias, in the back of her mind, has been plotting. She's been waiting for the opportune moment to get rid of John. Because his existence is an offense to her sinful and wicked heart. And so she must do away with this man. So verse, five, verse 21 says this. Finally, the opportune time came. For what? To kill John. To silence the word that I don't want. This reads like a tragedy. It says, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So he's got religious people, military people, and political people. They're all gathered together. John is a, a backwater thought to Herod on this night. This, this party, if you, if you read through ancient literature, some of the commentators, you find out that everything that happens here is loaded with inebriation, and sensuality. Okay, that was the nature of these types of gatherings. So as you read it, that's the background of what King Herod's feast were like. So finally the opportune time came. He throws a party on his birthday, brings in all the people that he can't live without the appreciation of. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod. And and most, almost every commentator will tell you that there is something of a sensual effect of these words and implication. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. She does a sultry dance and finds high applause. The king in his vibrato, probably to some level inebriated by the party, speaks up in verse 22. Here's what he says. In front of all his friends, honey, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her on an oath, I swear, whatever you want, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Sounds a lot like an Old Testament story, doesn't it? Okay. I'll give you half the kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, keep in mind, her mother, so the girl is bait. That's always the way it is in sexual perversion. The girl is bait used. And she is used, when she gets approval and is told you can have whatever you want up to half the kingdom, she goes to her mom because she knows she was sent there by her evil mom. And mom's wishes are what matters. And here comes the plot. Watch what happens. Mom, everything up to half the kingdom, what shall I ask for? Verse 24, mom, the head of John the Baptist, at once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. If you read much literature, you've heard this statement, head on a platter. Okay, why? Because it happened. And what it speaks of is a categoric Hateful rejection of a voice. Not just a body, a voice that thought and spoke truth. And you want them shut up. And this is what they did in the ancient world. The king was greatly distressed, verse 26. But, 
Now listen to this. Because of the oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought his head back on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to, it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came. They took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. Why did Herod so categorically reject Christ? I'll give you these thoughts. One, his sin. This dude's life is so complicated. I, I don't know about you. There is, there is nothing about Herod's life, his accomplishments, his acquisitions that I envy at any level. Because this is how I know Herod. There's nothing about that life that I sit back and say, oh man, I wish. And I am not free from coveting what people have, okay? When a Ford 350 Dormax drives by, I see myself, okay? I do. Okay, so I am not free from it. There's nothing about what Herod has that I find in any way attractive. Nothing. There's a sadness. Sin has complicated his life so we can't see the Savior. The way of transgressions is hard. Secondly... Herod doesn't respond because of his guest. This, this guy is overcome by the need for people's approval. He needs his wife's approval. He needs his peers' approval. And he can't live without it. The fear of man, Proverbs says, brings a snare. Fear of man is this longing and need for people's approval. Can I say this? Be careful when you think you are free from that tendency. Herod was captured by that tendency. John chapter 12, Jesus talks about some of the religious establishment that saw what he did. It says, yet at this, John 12, yet at the same time, many even of the leaders believed in him, meaning they gave assent to the fact that what Jesus says is true. His understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, true. His actions, his miracles, they're not fakes. They're genuine, they're real. So at that time, among the leaders, many of them believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they may be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. I think that is one of the most sad statements in scripture. They had seen the work of God in the person of Christ. They had validated its truthfulness. But they could not give up the approval they already had for the approval that matters most. God's. That is exactly where Herod is here. His pride keeps him from repenting. The other thing that you I'm sorry, his guests keep him from repenting. His pride keeps him from, from, uh, from repenting. To save face. His pride got him. His vibrato got him. He would not and could not admit that his decision was wrong. He couldn't say to the guests, I overreached. I overstepped. I reverse my order. Even though he could have. He loved their approval so much he would not give up his reputation that he treasured for the salvation that he so desperately needed. That's a sad place to be. Lastly, time. 
Herod had had a lot of time to think things through. He had had a long extended relationship with John, but he also practiced what we would call chronic procrastination. He found John interesting. He probably found John at some level convicting. But every time he thought of yielding to the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, he was overwhelmed by what it would cost him. Here's the truth. If God has been calling on your heart and provoking you and, and, and convicting you of the, the truth of the gospel, if he has been calling you to trust in Christ, here's what I want you to know. Not now. Often becomes not ever. Not now. Yield to Christ. Repent of your sin to Christ. Trust Christ. Not now. Delay. Often becomes not ever. That's the story of Herod, who sadly one day stood before God and had to confess that he knew the truth, but loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. It's really interesting, really interesting and troubling to go to Luke 23, where Jesus is called in before this Herod, Here's what it says. When Herod saw Jesus in this brutalized condition, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he wanted to see Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle for theater, as a sideshow, as a distraction. He plied him with questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. That is a horrifying possibility. Herod stands as a do not reject Christ. Herod stands as a a call. If today you hear his voice, the Old Testament says, don't harden your heart as they did. Be responsive to the good news that Christ came to proclaim, to the message of freedom that his disciples proclaimed, to the truth that John the Baptist offered to Herod. Don't fight it. Don't resent it. Don't resist it. Trust. Trust. The last time we hear of Herod in Scripture, he asked Jesus, and Jesus gives him silence. Why is this story here? Why does it stand between the sending and returning of the disciples? I think it stands here for this reason. If John the Baptist suffered... And if Jesus, our Messiah, suffered in doing the will of his Father, then it is very likely that his disciples, his followers, will face seasons of struggle. So if you're in the midst of a season of struggle, I want you to remember what what the disciples of John did after he was killed. They came. They would not let his body be disgraced but instead honored in burial. That should should ring a bell for you. The greatest disciple, Jesus, who came to do the will of his father after he had died and experienced full rejection by men, was approved by two men, Joseph of Arimathea, and I can't remember the other name right now. They took his body, and though he was rejected, despised, killed on a criminal's cross, they gave him an honorable burial. 
So I find as I read through the Gospels, the followers of Jesus, Jesus himself, John the Baptist and the Twelve and others have a calling from God. In the fulfillment of that calling, they had seasons of struggle. But at the end, they found the approval that matters most. I don't know about you, but I read through that flow. That is a hopeful, that is an encouraging message from my heart. You know, sometimes we're not going through such a hard time. Sometimes it's just hard. And here's what I, I need to know. I need to know that the Savior who took the disciples aside in verse 30 to 32, sensing their struggle, he debriefed them, which we do in prayer, and he gave them rest. He gave them what they needed for the next step in the journey. He didn't give them everything they needed for the rest of their lives. This is a daily walk, and this is what God in his grace desires to do the other thing i want to say because sometimes you go through a difficult time and here's what you think the struggle in my life is a sign of god's disapproval you know folks i'm going to tell you something and i'll say this rather strongly i should actually read what i wrote i cannot read john's story and abide the modern day perversion of prosperity preachers who say that gospel equals health and wealth. That is a lie from the pit of hell that has no concurrence and no validation in the word of God. I have no idea how you could look at the life of Christ, the life of John the Baptist, the life of the disciples, all who die as martyrs or as savior, how you can look at the life of the apostle Paul, how you can look at Stephen in the book of Acts and conclude That the aim of the gospel is to give me my best life now with a big smile. I have no idea how you can come to that conclusion. My question is, what book are you reading to come up with that lie? Because that lie says that all struggle is detrimental. And when struggles come, pray for release. It's not what the Bible teaches. Paul says, I glory in my infirmities so that the power and approval of Christ may rest upon me so that I may be effective in ministry. I thank God that he made me average. Thank God for that because I cannot rest in my capacities to do God's work. Don't think that the suffering is a sign of God's disapproval. It is instead a sign of his favor. He's shaping you and working in your life to use you for his glory. I thought of this. I thought, who would I rather be at the end of the day? Herod clutching to power by compromise. Or John clinging to Jesus by faith. I mean, seriously. As you listen to that account, who do you want to be? Christ followers, though divinely called and aided, often face seasons of fierce opposition in which Christ brings refreshment and hope. I think Doug Finkbinder would be proud of that statement. He always summarizes his stuff so nicely. Right? I'm going to send it to him. Christ's followers, though divinely aided, in spite of that, face opposition, fierce. And in that opposition, Christ brings refreshment and hope. That's what this text says. 
Today, if you sense the Savior's call, if you hear his voice, don't resist. If you're sitting in this room, if you're out there online and you're listening and there's a sense, you sense the Spirit of God calling. Repent, believe. People have called out your sin graciously, not to destroy you, but for your saving and eternal hope. Trust him. In your struggles, value community. The thing that jumps out to me, because I'm all about the relationship thing in scripture. Jesus sends them out two by two. Because in those seasons of struggle, you're going to need to share the burden. You need to know that you're not alone in the struggle. There's a company out there called Peloton. They're selling bikes, stationary bikes, something I absolutely despise. Their sales are up 174% this year. You know why? Because they've captured the idea of community and competitiveness. They've captured the idea that people like to work out, but they get discouraged. But when someone comes alongside them on a screen, they're more likely to finish the race. May we get it as the church. I have two brothers sitting here. Dan Slack, welcome back, by the way. Where's your mask? Dan Slack and my brother Don Hoff. Both of these men went through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. One of the first things I did when I heard that my, let's see, who came first? Who had the cancer first? I think Donnie did first. So I said to Dan, I said, would you mind calling my, when Dan got his cancer, I called Dan and I said, would you mind talking to my brother? And they cultivated, they don't even know that each other are here right now, but now they can see each other. What, what? Burdens, struggles are easier to carry when you share them. It's that simple. That's why Fran Pilch does grief share ministry in our church. Why? When people are struggling with grief, it's better to do it in community. Because when one falls down, the other can help them up. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus sent the disciples out as teams. Don't live your Christian life in isolation. It will lead to failure because the struggle is real and hard. I read something last night online. It said this. One day, you will tell the story of your struggle and how you overcame now. And it will become somebody else's survival guide. Think about that. One day you will tell the story of your struggle. How you got through it. How you survived. You'll write it. One day somebody else will read it. And it'll be their survival guide. That is God's design for the church. That we would, in this struggle, be together. And lastly, in your struggle, keep your eye on the prize. John had to have a compelling vision of Christ's promises. John 14, 1. I am going to prepare a place for you. So that when you are rejected here, cast aside in John's case, killed and buried in the grave, you know that one day I am coming back. And I have gone to prepare a place for you so that when I return, I will take you to be with myself so you can be where I am. In Luke 10, the disciples come back from a phenomenally successful season of ministry. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, the dead are raised. The blind see. We have seen amazing, stunning things. Jesus says, awesome, but don't rejoice in this as if it is 
ultimate. Instead, he says, rejoice that your names are written in God's book. Folks, I want to tell you something. In the struggle, you need to know that God has your name and God has your back. So that you are ready to pay the ultimate price because you know that it is not the ultimate loss. He's prepared a place for you. Keep your eye on the prize. Rejoice that your name is written. Jim Symbol had recently posted this statement. Because here's the truth. The struggles are hard. The struggles are at times exhausting, draining. And you're wondering, can I go on? You worry about what's next. You worry if it's going to come back. You worry about the struggle. You worry what will happen if you tell the person you need to tell the truth to, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There are consequences. You worry about your future. You're struggling with trust. Here's what Jim Simbola said. He said, believer in Christ, you do not have to worry about your future. Here's your future. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to think about next time worry comes in the struggle of faithful Christ following. And you get tired. And you fret about the future. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I as a follower of Christ, by virtue of his cross work, though I am a sinner desperately in need of his grace, forgiven by his shed blood, will dwell in his house forever. And when you see me in heaven, Elizabeth, you're not going to walk up to me and say, what did you do to get here? All right? It'll be Christ. Christ, Christ, and that's it. In the struggle, cling to Christ. In the end, enjoy Christ. It's what followers do. It's what Jesus did, it's what John did, and it's what we're called to do. May God help us. Father, I pray that if someone here is here this morning who has never trusted Christ, if someone's watching online who has never bent the knee to trust in Christ. They've said not now, not yet. Help them to realize today, God, that not now and not yet often means not ever. Give them the gift of repentance by the work of your spirit. Show them their sinfulness through your truth and let them lay hold of the gospel of Christ in faith by the power of your spirit. And Lord, for every believer listening, we know what it is to struggle, God. In that struggle, teach us to trust, to rest, to believe, to have faith, knowing that as James said at the very beginning today, your grace is sufficient. You never panic. And so we trust you as our heavenly father. We give ourselves to you. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory over this church today. Amen. If you have a need for prayer, the altar is open. If you want to talk and pray, you can seek out myself or James, and we would love to pray with you this morning before you go. God bless you.
as you depart today.